Welcome to the OA Light a Candle meeting podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Jack Z. My name is Jack, and I'm a compulsive overeater. And I have been a member of Overeaters Anonymous since the 12th of February, 1971. Wow. The abstinence that I have, which I do not refer to as my abstinence, because if it were mine, it wouldn't be, but uh, is from somewhere between the middle of May and the latter part of August, 1971. So... So I, uh, I've maintained a 50 to 60 pound weight loss for that period of time, which is uh, 39 years and some odd months. And I am uh, I'm very grateful to Overeaters Anonymous. You know, I spoke at this meeting when it first started. Uh, Roy started the meeting, and uh, Roseanne was the first speaker. And had I responded to him in time, I practiced procrastination. Uh, I would have been the second speaker. I ended up being uh, about the fifth speaker, I think it was. So I didn't start out to be a compulsive overeater. I don't remember putting that in my high school annual or anything like that. It uh, it just it just happened, you know. Some people are more fortunate than others. Many years ago, they used to to give uh, an award to people who. Uh, they felt had done service to Overeaters Anonymous in an indirect fashion. And one of them was was Dear Abby. And I had the, the pleasure of sitting at the table that she was at. And uh, when she got up to share, she looked out at us and she said to us, you are the beautiful people. And I think that uh, one of the reasons that she said that is that if you can come into these rooms and admit that you're a compulsive overeater, that's one heck of an admission. And then if you can follow through on that admission, you are on a road to recovery. One of the uh, misquoted areas of the big book is uh, that we strive for progress rather than perfection. And people tend to use it as, uh, you know, if, if this were Alcoholics Anonymous, they'd be saying, I don't drink quite as much as I used to. I'm toning down. I, I only have uh, a six-pack every other day. So I'm, I'm on the path. Well, but the statement actually says we strive for spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Welcome. And that is only done when you decide that you are a compulsive overeater and you get some form of abstinence. Just as in the other program, it's when you put the plug in the jug that you can begin to recover. But until, you know, uh, Roseanne used to say that we need to put down the fork. Now, whatever it is, whether you require a fork to eat it or not, you need to put it down and abstain for, from that. And I'm not telling you what to abstain from. 
except compulsive overeating. I happen to be powerless over refined flours and refined sugars. There is no day of the week that they couldn't beat me down. Uh, and uh, I, I used to take pride in a couple of things. One of them was my memory, and the other was my ability to eat. I've got some pie stories. <laughs> Sometimes you'd think I never ate anything but pies. But one illustrates my ability to eat. I was in high school, and I found out that there was a pie-eating contest. Free pie. And it was, uh, it was sponsored by the uh, Youth for Christ or Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, I often say I'm not sure for Christ's sake. <laughs> but, uh, and nothing against either one of them. And I went, I went there, I showed up for the pieing contest, and this is the kind of confidence that I had. I knew that no matter who was in there, no matter how much heavier they may be than I, that there was no way that they could out-eat me. You know? And I won that pieing contest. You know? But that's not something that later in life you want to put down on a resume. <laughs> One piting contest. You, know, you ought to hire me to take care of your firm. For some reason, employers don't respect that. But you do respect that. And the other one, I've got several, as I said, but the other, the other pie story illustrates that food is intelligent. Now, maybe you don't realize this, but... I had been coming to meetings, and after the meeting, we would go to coffee, which people now call fellowship, and I think this in these rooms is the fellowship, not in a coffee house or a diner. So after the meeting, a group of us are sitting around the table, and the meetings usually started at 8 o'clock, and they would go until 9.30 or 10 o'clock, and then we'd go out and go to coffee. People nowadays, I've got to get up and go to work when the meeting now starts an hour to two hours earlier than they did before. And trust me, we had to get up just as early then as people do now to get to work, but they were willing to do that. And they found something in that in addition to the meeting. And that, that something was understanding and identification. So we're sitting at this table and everybody's conversing with one another, and I feel left out. You ever felt left out? You know? mm-hmm. Well, I felt left out. It was a you know, crowded table. And my eyes, I get biblical on this story. My eyes looked, having nothing to do with youth or campus crusade, I looked out, and my eyes beheld, beheld, that's a good word, I beheld this carousel, you know what they have in some restaurants there? And on that carousel was a cherry pie. Now, and this is where it really gets biblical. As God is my witness, that pie spaketh unto me. <laughs> and you'll never guess what that pie said. Yes, how did you know? He must have been there. Yes, it said, eat me. So I had to explain, this is in my mind, of course, there. some people would feel really in your mind, but I had to converse with this pie because I didn't want to do so out loud. Uh, they might have called men in white jackets, newcomer gone awry. 
But that that pie said, eat me. And I said, I can't do that. You know, And it said, you don't have to eat all of me. You can just take a bite. If this pie really knew me, they would know it. But anyhow, so every time it gave me a reason to eat it, and I came up with a reason not to eat, it came up with a better reason for me to eat it. So it is my feeling that food can outthink and outmaneuver me any time of the week. And I discovered there is only one way to, to beat the game. And the only way to beat the game is not to play the game, which was a theme from a movie many years ago. A computer came up with that. And so uh, that's a valuable lesson. The same way that, that if you want to, to get close to God... The way to get open to God is to relax. It's not if you if you've ever been to the beach. It's kind of hard to picture not being at the beach at one time or another in California. And you want to hold on to a bunch of sand. You don't just grab it and hold on tight because it's going to go right through your fingers. Every opening it will find and it will get out. But what you do is you reach down and you cup your hand and you hold it like that, nice and loose. And that's the way to maximize what you can get. And it's the same thing in receiving benefits. And so when I when I came into Overeaters Anonymous, I, I got a lady as a sponsor. And she told me about this thing called the gray sheet. And so I went on to the gray sheet. And I lost my weight. I lost my weight in, uh, in a little over a month. And then she explained to me that now was the time to be taken through the steps, but that she could not do that because she had not yet done her inventory. And so I had to find uh, somebody to take me through the steps. And I asked this man named Ray, who has been deceased now for, I guess, about four years. And he was a wonderful man. I, I loved him dearly, or grew to. And Ray was... To, to me what Dr. Bob was in the history of AA because Ray was there early he would set up coffee he would set up the chairs you know like like Mickey Mickey was probably the first one here in fact it probably helps he, he probably has the key but Ray Ray would be there and he would do this and then he would stand out and greet people you know and and then at the end of the meeting, he would talk to people and he would uh, straighten up after the meeting. He would help take down the coffee or whatever you do with coffee. I don't drink coffee. And so I approached Ray and he had, long time, he had been sober as long as, as Chuck C. had been in AA. And Chuck C. could get a crowd and hold a crowd, but Ray could not. Ray did not share very often, but when he shared you knew you'd better listen because he had a reason for sharing. And uh, so I approached Ray and uh, asked him if he would take me through the first three steps so I could get on, you know, I have to get on with life. And he asked me if I had read the big book. I told Ray that I had the big book. He noticed the subtle difference between doing and having. So... I, I said to, to Ray, I had taken a course in speed reading in college, and I said, well, 
I will go home and I will read the big book and we can get together. He didn't like that. He wanted me to take maybe three or four weeks, whatever the time was, to go through the book. Isn't that gross? So, you know, I'd like you to know that I am an honorable person, that I am willing to compromise. He was not, but I'm... So I said, I tell you what, I will slow down my reading speed, and I will read it this weekend, and then we can get together. He stuck with his three weeks or whatever it was. Dang, so we had irreconcilable differences. That was all there was to it. So I approached this uh, this woman named Jean, and I love Jean. And Jean loved Elvis Presley like you would not believe. And she had seen Elvis Presley perform more than one time, and he had actually kissed one of her cheeks. And I don't think she ever washed that cheek again. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a, the love was incredible. On her fingernails, each of her fingers were painted a different color. But it was matching. Uh, each thumb the same color all the way down to the And the same thing with the toes. She was incredible. And she didn't have any nasty requirements. She didn't say, have you read the big book? No. She was wonderful. So... Uh, I I went to her apartment and we got together and sat down uh, and she asked me a series of questions and I answered those questions and she shared some and I shared some and then she read a poem about a butterfly which was a really nice poem I haven't heard that poem in a long time and then she told me I I could now get into doing the inventory Well, this I have really wanted to do. Uh, I was in a real hurry to get the inventory until she told me I could now do the inventory. Then my head started thinking, somebody's going to read this. And maybe I'll lose it and somebody will find it. And there was no web at the time, but, you know, and they'll, they'll publish it. And it'll hit the New York Times bestseller list. And I'll be in deep doo doo. So I was hesitant to do that, and we used to travel uh, to different areas, not she and I, but different groups of us. And so um, she and I and probably two other ladies had gone to a, to a meeting in the evening, and we went to Los Angeles, and we, uh, this is from Bellflower, and we went to deep in Orange County, and we'd go out to Pomona, different places. So when we got back one time, she she asked me how I was doing with the inventory. Well, I told her I wasn't doing with the inventory. So she she told me, she asked me to put in just maybe 10 minutes a day, which may not seem like a lot unless you're the one doing the inventory. And she told me, she said, and if you get to a point where you're really uncomfortable with something that you're writing... Uh, She said, you can call me, and you don't have to tell me what it is that's bothering me. You just tell me that you were writing the inventory and I bothered you, and we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. And so she was very giving and very generous of herself, which I have found in some people over the years. And then I had, had, as I told you, a little over a month reached maintenance, and I got this uh, this other lady as a... 
as a maintenance sponsor. And God, I loved her dearly. She was a, a wonderful, wonderful lady. And so, um, and then I mentioned to you that at some point I broke my abstinence, and it was my abstinence, because I had in mind that I would abstain and I would be the rarity in OA. Uh, somebody that comes in, gets abstinent, and stays there forever. That one was crushed. So, and I, I broke my abstinence. Uh, I, had, I had gone to, um, to talk to this guy who happened to be Gene's son after a meeting, and he, got, he and I got involved in a conversation about something that I really don't care that much about. But he knew a little bit more about it than I did probably much more. And this bothered me. And so I'm trying to win this discussion. And uh, and he probably just took it as a discussion, but I took it as this as a challenge. And uh, the rough part was when we parted and I was driving home. He was not in the car, but you wouldn't know it because I'm still discussing this thing and he's still winning. He's not even there, and he's winning. So I, I got, I got home, and I, uh, I do not recall any of this. But what I figured out was that I got home, and I walked in the door, and I hit the refrigerator, and I took care of the problem. And then I sat down in a chair, and was thinking about having dinner. And then I reminded myself that I had already had dinner earlier. And then I felt the taste of food in my mouth, and I realized what I had done, and it scared me. And I'll tell you why it, it scared me, for a couple of reasons. One, it was very important for me to be aware of what I was doing every moment of the day. And I had seen people uh, go out and come back in and talk about how it really wasn't good out there. And I had, uh, at some point in talking to Roseanne, I was interested in doing a history at one time. And in talking to her, she showed me a picture of this guy uh, named Ron, who was long since deceased. And Ron came into Overeaters Anonymous in San Francisco, weighing 550 pounds. And she showed me a picture of him when he was about 200 pounds. Now that's having lost 350 pounds. But when I first met Ron, he was on the way back up. And he weighed probably around 350 pounds. I'm just guessing. And he was loved. People really liked him a lot. And he had a gorgeous wife and a, a good profession. All, all these things. He was, in every sense of the word, a winner, except food kicked him. Now, one thing I didn't tell you about that pie story that I have since realized is that I was kind of thinking about this pie must have been on a suicide mission, you know, wanting me to eat it and end its career, of course, in an honorable fashion. And then I came to realize that I was the one committing suicide. And I realized that this is a disease where we are killing ourselves on the installment plan. And generally smiling all the way. 
you know, because ain't nobody going to see how badly we're hurting because they don't understand because their solution is just don't do it. And that that solution is great, except it, it really never worked for me. So, uh, Ron, back to that, I drift and come back. Ron ended up passing away and I went to his funeral and I met his wife, whom I had not met before, and I could tell you that she was gorgeous because I saw her at the funeral. And uh, he passed away weighing 650 pounds. Okay, weighing 100 pounds more than he first came into over years anonymous weighing. This disease kills. You know, just recently in Fullerton, a guy that I really liked an awful lot. He passed away, and I have no idea how heavy he was, but he was up there. And the additional point is, most people never live to be 550 or 650 pounds. Uh, Most people end up expiring before they get to that point. I was also a vomiter, which I originally chose to call an upchucker. Now, because, and my, my reason for vomiting was just so I could get more down. And I, I saw Bette Midler interviewed on, I think, Johnny Carson one time. And uh, she told him that she suffered from the disease of more. And I love that. So, you know, it's become mine, but I give her credit for it whenever I say it. And uh, there are people who have been a great influence to me over the years. Some sponsored me and some never sponsored me. Chuck C., whom I mentioned earlier, was one of them. A man named Floyd, whom I don't think there's anybody in this room that would recall. But Floyd uh, gave the the line for this problem, which is now in uh, for today, I guess, but it wasn't for years because it was his. And he, he said that he went from sliver to slice to slab to slop. That was the progression of the disease. You know, and that's what it is. The late John Warren used to say he put the plug in the jug and the refrigerator door popped open. Okay? Which is a funny line. It is. But it's also an illustrative line. And that is that if you do not deal with the underlying problems, the disease has to get out. It has to. And it will either get out through food, if this is your problem, or it will find another outlet. You'll find yourself compulsively spending or compulsively doing something because the disease has to come out. And I've said over the years, although it's very simplistic, but it's, as far as I know, original with me, dis-ease leads to the disease. And that our, our choice is, you know, we either stuff our face or face our stuff. Okay? And that goes both ways and it only works with food. I like that. So, you know, And Roy heard me say that one time and he said, I like that line. He said, I'm going to steal it. I don't know if I'll give you credit for it or not, but he liked it. <laughs> but that's, that's it. And also, that which you turn to in time of need is your higher power. Okay? And if you're in need and you end up turning to a, a pop tart or whatever, or a, or a pumpkin pie, that's another pie story. And I don't really like pumpkin pie, but 
that was what I won the fighting contest with. And I really don't care for it. This disease and more my head. It's not the disease, it's the way the wiring is in my head. Is cunning, baffling, powerful, and patient. It can outweigh me. That's why a lady that visited one time from uh, Michigan and spoke in our Monday night Downey meeting uh, said that her sponsor had told her that all the while uh, she was eating, her disease was doing push-ups in the next room. And that was the first time I ever heard that line, which was probably easily 30-some years ago. And that's the way this, this thing is. You know, it, it will kill me. And it also says in, in the big book that God makes this possible. Why? Yeah. Well, because if he didn't make this possible, we wouldn't have free will. That is our blessing and it's our curse at the same time. Because we do have free will. And I believe that God listens to and answers prayer but he answers it only when we're ready. That night when I when I broke my abstinence, I called the lady who had become my maintenance sponsor and I told her what I what I had done. It was probably a little bit past midnight. Because remember I'd gone to coffee. And I told her what I had done and she told me what I was going to do. And at that point, it was no longer a suggested program of recovery. It was, you do these things. And so I, uh, I did everything she told me to do, and I can tell you also that I didn't want to do anything that she told me to do. In all sincerity, I did not. But I did. Okay, and what she told me to do is not as important, although I relate it. It's very important to me. But it's not as important as when all else fails, follow directions. I don't know who first came up with that line or I would give them credit. So what she, what she told me that I was going to do, and you had to hear the tone in her voice because I knew this was, you do this or we're parting company. She never said that. Uh, but I felt it. And so she had me get up at the next meeting that I went to and share what I had done, and then she said, you tell them what you did, and then you shut down, you know, sit down, shut up, and listen, because you have nothing to say. And I believe that. You know, I've got something to share as long as I'm abstinent. But if I'm not abstinent, what do I have to share? You know, I don't have anything, not at a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. If we're at a meeting of let's get fat and stay fat, i got something to share. <laughs> But I happen to be in a program that's not focused on that. It's focused at attaining and maintaining a normal, healthy body weight. Then she told me, and this is where all this comes from, that she wanted me to read five pages a day out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. She wanted me to underline. She wanted me to write a one-page summary. I'm losing fingers. And... uh, and that was it. And she put me back on losing abstinence and I had been on maintenance and continuing to lose weight on maintenance. And she should have known she was going to turn me into a skeleton. But, you know, and I did exactly what she told me to do. And as a result of that, I am here tonight. I, I really believe that. 
later on she broke her abstinence and anyone who was sponsored by her had to find somebody else because she had nothing to share. She needed to learn. And uh, and now we've been together again for, for quite a while. But in the interim, I found uh, a guy uh, who, uh, who sponsored me. He was a wonderful guy, too. And this is kind of a strange statement because I would go up to his uh, Spartan apartment in Hollywood, and it was very sparse. There wasn't a whole lot there. And I would sit down across from him, and we would talk. And uh, he would end up saying at some point, what does that word mean that you used? And I would tell him what I thought that word that I used meant. And he would have me walk across the room and get the dictionary. And bring it back and sit down and read. You know, look up that word and read it. Well, this gets kind of tiring. Uh, But I did that. And people noticed that I I was doing better. They noticed changes in me that I didn't really notice. And that's one of the things in the back of the big book under spiritual experience that it talks about is that sometimes other people, or quite often other people, notice these changes before we become aware of them. And I think that's a good deal. And one of the things I did not tell you, I told you about the reading the pages and all that, but she didn't tell me when I did the writing whether it would be open book or closed book. Now, but my honest feeling was I just went with closed book because I, I you know, I hadn't been doing so well on, uh, on the negotiations with her. In fact, I didn't even try to negotiate those terms. I just felt it was the... It was a taker to leave it. And I've got to tell you this, too, that often my form of negotiation is we've negotiated if I come out winning. We have not negotiated if I don't come. And it seems to be that way in the world in an awful lot of places, too. So I, I did this. And I discovered uh, that I read those five pages and I would grab a sheet of paper and I would start to write. And I could not think of what I had just read and I would have sworn on a stack of Bibles that I had read those five pages. I just hadn't absorbed them. So I had to read those five pages again and pull out the same sheet of paper and a pen and I might remember a little bit more. And I had to do this the first couple times maybe about four or three to five times let's say. And I kind of put this together. I would end up reading the same pages like three to four times a day in order to just read them. And somewhere in my head it it clicked and I started paying attention even though I thought I was paying attention before. In the same way that I discovered, you know, surrender is a word that is very important in, in these fellowships. It's also a word that you will not find uh, in the big book, in the core section. You don't find that word. Okay, You do not. But I, I discovered many years later when I dictated a letter to a sponsee, to my sponsor, uh, I was working with a lady who had been friends of hers for a long time, and she was 
finally having success because she had been around OA for many years and had just been waffling. And so I, I discovered in the process of, of writing that that what had happened was that I had been willing to be surrendered and God had done for me what I could not do for myself. Okay. And I am not a holy roller, you know, not at all, on any level. But I, I believe that it was, it was God that did this. And so I don't call this my abstinence. I have no right to because it's not mine. What I do need to do is look after it and follow it. And I did not set the abstinence that I have. It was set for me. And when I discovered that I had medical issues, it was a lady that I knew in the fellowship, and I later ended up being the executor of her estate uh, that brought me a, a food plan that was geared for the medical problem that I had. And then... Uh, a year or so ago, a doctor that I went to told me I have acid reflux. Who knew? <laughs> and so he changed my eating further. And I figured with the way he changed my eating, I would probably lose weight. Bad guess. And I can tell you now that I eat far, far less than I did 40 years ago. I, you know, I was able to have... Uh, uh, 16 ounces of protein at one time. And I would take, no, not 16, uh, 8, I'm sorry, 8 ounces, which allowed me to have, that was like 4 ounces was 2 pieces of chicken. And I found chickens that had whopping endowments. Uh, and so I would end up having, uh, can I say that okay? Uh, so I would end up having like, no, I did. I, I think I did have a higher number. And I would have a number of, of breasts per meal. Now, now I can't do that. I'm, I just, I, I have three to four ounces of protein. My abstinence is not contingent upon a certain quantity of food, except that that quantity of food is what it takes to sustain this body. Because if I were insisting on having the kinds of foods that I had then, you know, I would not be thin. I would be whatever the opposite is to thin. And so it's just a lot of this is just what I said earlier, which is not an original quote of mine, and that is, when all else fails, follow the directions. That is a real key to this program. And finding somebody... You know, they, they like to say that, uh, you know, you can't tell us what to do. Well, I'll tell you, recovery begins when you're willing to be told what to do. And, and that's it. This was all in a wrap anyhow. And uh, I'm so grateful for Lucy to have asked me to uh, share and reminded me this morning. And to you for putting up with me. So, thank you.